0: Hello boys and girls, ladies and germs, damas y caballeros, tajia This is Tim Ferriss, welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to interview world-class performers to deconstruct how they do what they do. Influences, favorite books, habits, belief structures, you name it. My guest today is Dax Shepard, D-A-X Shepard, S-H-E-P-A-R-D, at Dax Shepard on Twitter and Instagram. Dax is an American actor, writer, director, and podcast host. He is known for his work in the feature films Without a Paddle, Zathura, A Space Adventure, Employee of the Month, Idiocracy, Let's Go to Prison, Hit and Run, and Chips, the last pair of which he also wrote and directed, and the MTV practical joke reality series Punked. He portrayed Crosby Braverman in the NBC comedy drama series Parenthood. Since 2018, he has hosted the Juggernaut podcast Armchair. Expert. It was 2018's most downloaded new podcast on Apple Podcasts and won breakout podcast at the 2019 iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. His roster of guests includes Kristen Bell, it includes Ashton Kutcher, Bill Gates, Alicia Keys, Chelsea Peretti, Sarah Silverman, Conan O'Brien, Seth Rogen, 50 Cent. Jimmy Kimmel, Alanis, Morissette, and hundreds more. You can find Armchair Expert on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Dax, as I mentioned, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at Dax Shepard. The website is armchairexpertpod.com. Please enjoy a wide-ranging conversation with Dax Shepard. This episode is brought to you by Aura, O-U-R-A. It is the only wearable that I wear on a daily basis. Aura is the company behind the smart ring that delivers personalized sleep and health insights to help you optimize just about everything. And I've tried every device out there that you can imagine. This one really makes the cut. I've been using it religiously for at least six months now, and I was introduced to it by Dr. Peter Atia, who's also vetted just about everything. With advanced sensors, Pack's state-of-the-art heart rate, heart rate variability, HRV, super important to me, temperature activity and sleep monitoring technology into a convenient non-invasive ring. It's tiny. It weighs less than six grams and focuses on three key insights, sleep, readiness, and activity. So I can use it to help focus my attention on the type, volume, intensity of exercise that I should do in a given day. I use it to determine how certain types of alcohol at different times of the day affect my sleep, which they do, and I can see all of that in graph form trended over time. There are tons of actionable insights that have come from using this ring for me. They have a number of incredible people on their team. Dr. Matthew Walker, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at UC Berkeley, and also author of Why We Sleep, The mega hit is Aura's chief science advisor as just one example. The Aura Ring is one of the most accurate wearables available because it measures your vitals directly from your finger. So it's not deducing that or... Uh, making a best guesstimate based on a bunch of other things and trying to triangulate. Compared to a medical-grade electrocardiogram, the Oura Ring is 99.9% accurate for resting heart rate and 98.4% accurate for heart rate variability. And I work with HRV doctors, and they recommend that I use the Aura Ring. So try it yourself. It is super cool and super practical, very actionable. The Aura Ring comes in two styles and three colors silver, black, and matte black. I use matte black. For $299, you can give or get the gift of health by visiting AuraRing.com. That's O U R A R I N G.com. Again, that's AuraRing.com. This episode is brought to you by Viori Clothing, spelled V-U-O-R-I, Viori. I've been wearing Viori at least one item per day for the last few months, and you can use it for everything. It's performance apparel, but it can be used for working out. It can be used for going out to dinner, at least in my case. I feel very comfortable with it. Super comfortable, super stylish, and uh, I just want to read something that one of my employees said. She is an athlete. She is quite technical, although she would never say that. I asked her if she had ever used or heard of Viore, and this was her response. I do love their stuff. Been using them for about a year. I think I found them at REI. First for my partner, t-shirts that are super soft but somehow last as he's hard on stuff. And then I got into the super soft cotton yoga pants and jogger sweatpants. I live in them, and they too have lasted. They're stylish enough I can wear them out and about. The material is just super soft and durable. I just got their clementine running shorts for summer and love them. The brand seems pretty popular, constantly sold out. In closing, and I'm abbreviating here, but in closing, with the exception of when I need technical outdoor gear, they're the only brand I've bought in the last year or so for yoga, running, loungewear that lasts and that I think look good also." I like the Discreet logo. So that gives you some idea. That was not intended for the sponsor read. That was just her response via text. Viori, again spelled V-U-O-R-I, is designed for maximum comfort and versatility. You can wear it running. You can wear their stuff training, doing yoga, lounging, weekend errands, or in my case, again, going out to dinner. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Their clothing is so comfortable and uh, look so good. And it's it's non-offensive that you don't have a huge brand logo on your face. You'll just want to be in them all the time. And my girlfriend and I have been wearing them for the last few months. They're men's core short, K-O-R-E. The most comfortable lined athletic short is your one short for every sport. I've been using it for kettlebell swings, for runs, you name it. The Banks short. This is their go to land to see short is the ultimate in versatility. It's made from recycled plastic bottles. And what I'm wearing right now, which I had to pick one to recommend to (laughs) folks out there, or at least to men out there, is the Ponto Performance Pant. And you'll find these at the link I'm gonna give you guys. You can check out what I'm talking about. But I'm wearing them right now. They're thin performance sweatpants, but that doesn't do them justice. So you gotta check it out. P-O-N-T-O, Ponto Performance Pant. For you ladies, the Women's Performance Jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Viore isn't just an investment in your clothing, it's an investment in your happiness. And for you, my dear listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. It's super popular. A lot of my friends have now noticed are wearing this, and so am I. VioriClothing.com forward slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I Clothing.com slash Tim. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. So check it out. VioriClothing.com slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I Clothing.com slash Tim. And discover the versatility of Viore Clothing. Optimal. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com acquire. That's linkedin.com acquire. Terms and conditions apply.
1: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now the time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton.
0: Dax, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks. making the time.
1: Yes, thanks for having me. Uh it might be fun for people to even know why we're talking. Well, let's
0: see. it, it originated with a mention in my newsletter, Fible of Friday. A very I'd complimentary. Listen, very complimentary and very well-deserved related <laughs> to uh, an episode of your podcast, Armchair Expert, in which you interviewed Atul Gawande, uh, who I've respected for a very long time, author of many books, including The Checklist Manifesto. And it was one of those episodes that I come across every once in a while where I think to myself, I should have interviewed that guy first because <laughs> I don't think I'm actually going to be adding much to the conversation by having a second interview unless I just jump straight to the rapid fire questions. You know, if you were a breakfast cereal, what would you be kind of stuff. <laughs> right. You, 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 did, you did an exceptional job. and oh, uh, so flattering. Thank you. And so you reached out after that and that's how we connected. And we've yeah. had, I guess, one or two conversations since, and here we are on the show.
1: Yeah, we connected over the phone. Um, and I'll, I'll admit to my very, um, I think it's human, susceptibility to uh, compliments from high-status people. I mean, this is deplorable about me, but you know, certainly people wrote on that episode on our feed that it was nice and everything, and i it feels good, but then to see... In you could consider quotes a competitor on some level, so or a colleague. I don't know how you want to frame it, but to know that someone else who does what I do listened and liked it is is uh, abundantly flattering. I'll sometimes like, you know, I'll reach out to. I think we're both friends with Sam Harris, so if if there was an episode I loved of his, I'll. I'll tell them that, and then occasionally I'll go, oh, I really liked your and I'm like, wow, I, I assume you don't listen, you would never listen to my show because you have your own show. So I don't know, It's just, it gets elevated quickly for me that you had took the time to listen when you spend so much time in the podcast world and you probably want a break from it. I have decided that
0: I want to go back to the well and try to work on the craft, and part of that is listening to people who are really good and I polled my audience on Twitter to determine which episodes to hone in on. And that was part of my homework. Oh, and I, yeah. no kidding. Yeah. And I did that early, early on because I, I started the, this podcast in 2014, seems like in the Pliocene era. Yeah. And I initially looked at Inside the Actor's Studio and some of these others. Terry Gross also, I think, had a similar experience to yourself in the sense that Went on WTF with Mark Marin and Joe Rogan and was on Nerdist and had such a great time compared to the two minutes of having someone look over your shoulder at a teleprompter morning <laughs> yeah. TV edition. Yeah. That I decided to kind of you know, kick the tires and try it out, at least for myself. But it's, it seems to me like you have, much more so than myself, I mean, skyrocketed to such a, a dominant place in some respects with the podcast and and there's a lot to unpack there, but I thought where we could start is your mom. And I'll I'll place some background around that. I've had many friends of mine ask me if I would have my mom or dad on my podcast. Oh sure. And they've also suggested that I record episodes with them even if I never release them. And I think there's something to be said for that. I haven't yet done it. You did have your mom on the podcast. Yeah. And I would just love to hear you describe why you did that
1: and if it was at
0: all difficult to pull the trigger to do it and publish
1: it. Well, for me, it felt like I, I should absolutely do it because um, the kind of premise of of our show is look, man, it is hard to get through 80 years on this planet and not fuck up royally uh, often. And so my mother, just as her, I don't know where she got it from, to be honest with you, but she's always had the most compassionate, empathetic point of view. Like an example would be, I lived in a small town, Uh, you know, occasionally a young kid would uh, die in a car accident and uh, always drunk driving related. And, and there would be other people in the car and the whole community be mad at the driver. And my mother's first thought would always be like, Oh man, what are what are the parents of the boy driving thinking about? You know, every baby comes home and cigars are handed out and everyone's excited and this is just not where it should end for anyone. She always had this knack for kind of taking almost the antagonists in stories and having a great deal of empathy for them and so uh however much I'm able to do that on our show, it's it's directly credited to her for sure. And this really kind of willingness to own your fuck-ups in public, like she would tell people, <laughs> relative strangers, how many times she'd been divorced or this or that. She just didn't seem to, she seemed to fight shame with that. And so I just always admired her about that. And I, I definitely think that's, uh, if that's, you know, why the podcasts work, it's it's attributable to her. So it seemed natural to have her on, but then I had the fear of, you know, my mother's not a public personality. She's not been in interviews. It's a stressful Situation, as you just said, you know, I think people underestimate how much of a uh, like a starter pistol goes off when you're on one of those talk shows. It's like you're standing behind a door; it's about to raise up. You're supposed to walk out to the right and to the left, and you shake the guy's hand, then you sit down, then you let you know. It's so quick and like being shot out of a cannon that it's it's very hard to relax and be yourself out there. So, I had an appropriate amount of fear that she would maybe just not be the person I know once there was a microphone in front of her. And then to my great delight, she um, had no problem with it. She was just very comfortable right away. And then I think the unforeseen thing for me was the person who does interviews uh, was operating on some level. And so there are obvious things that I would have asked for follow-up questions with any other guest um, that I had never asked my mom. And I guess the one that was probably most profound is My mom has this incredible story, Um, you know, three divorces, started as a janitor, night shift, built a company, raised three kids on her own. She's had two suicide attempts. She's wrestled with mental uh, health issues. She had, uh, uh, my uh, first stepdad was physically abusive and beat her up in front of us. And it was was gnarly. And so, and she was very comfortable with that. And so she's kind of going through her story. And then it just hit me for the first time. It's something I would ask a real guest, which was, God, how could someone as tough as you and as confident as you have lived with someone that was beating you up? It's hard for me to, it's you're not, you don't fit the 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 stereotype I have of someone with low self-esteem that would find themselves in that relationship. And she said, again, I've never asked her that, but she said, you know, the shame of having failed twice. I just got divorced from your dad and and I didn't want to tell my parents and it w- that didn't go easy and everyone was disappointed and I felt like a failure and now I picked this other guy and I probably did it haphazardly and here I was again and I I was I would have preferred to have gotten physically beat up than to own the shame of having failed twice in such a short period of time and I think that ended up being one of the most profound things that happened in that. I know a lot of women, reached out to us and really related to that and have contacted my mom separately about that and and so yeah that was a neat part of it that i i never thought to really ask her in real life but then once in this context it seemed very obvious i should ask that and so i dug it i could definitely see it going off the rails and and i'll also add one thing about my mom which is i one time told a story on a talk show that was kind embarrassed her and she called me and she was a little embarrassed and I felt really bad and and I said I'm sorry I, I guess I, I I sometimes just assume you're as open as I am or whatever it is and then she called me back about a week and a half later and she said you know what I was wrong to call you uh this is your story and you are you have a full right to tell your story and it involves me sometimes and that can be sometimes I'm embarrassed by that but you certainly if you have any rights to tell your own story so I already had that relationship, so I think that puts me in a much better spot than maybe I don't know what your relationship is with your parents. Are they still married? They're still married.
0: Wow, my parents are still together. And I mean, there's there are a million directions we could go with that. Um, Uh huh. And maybe maybe we do maybe another time. (laughs) But before we before we turn it into the Tim Tim therapy session, which we can,
1: (laughs) well, we will when you're on my show for sure. Yeah, we'll do that.
0: (laughs) I'm very curious if, A, that's a level of like equanimity that you've seen in your mom before, because that's a very, I want to say mature, not in the age-related sense, but in the sort of psychological sense perspective to take with your story and the divulging and telling of things that might be embarrassing to her, might even cause uncomfortable conversations with her friends. Have you seen that before? And then... The second part is, did you see any downside or did she experience any downside to being on the show as someone who is not a public figure? And as we both know, a lot of weirdos can come out of the woodwork.
1: Oh, yeah. Um... Although it is filtered at a certain point as I'm sure you experience like in general if someone's listening to your show they probably like you you know I, d- I doubt people hate listening to you the way they did to Howard Stern in the 90s you know uh, oh,
0: my show my my stuff's too long
1: <laughs> yeah it's too much too much of a commitment <laughs> um no she she has had nothing but incredibly positive moving reactions to that. And I do think she thought maybe what I have thought in the past, which is, oh, well, she says this, this is going to be embarrassing to her brothers or her other family members, right? And that was not the case. And and I guess that's what I've kind of learned almost 250 times in a row doing the show, which is like every time you think it's going to be embarrassing and there's going to be backlash, that's almost assuredly going to mean something real and vulnerable came out. And I've just seen, I've yet to see vulnerability met with shittiness thus far. I mean, it, it'll certainly happen. In a, and, and certainly some some things I've admitted have been mildly weaponized by by different political points of view. But in general, I, I've just been so encouraged. And, and you know, a little bit, the premise of why I want to do the show is that I'm in a 12-step program. I'm in AA. I watch people, I've watched people for the last 17 years Share things that should make you hate them, but they're when they do it and they're owning it as a fault or a mistake or a character defect. It, it's just hard not to be empathetic towards that because, man, I, I've yet to meet the person who's not wrestling with some shittiness. You know, I think it's pretty. It's a unifying trait of us humans. You know, we we've got some shit we're all dealing with. It seems like
0: you have owned and use extremely well vulnerability as a superpower of sorts on your show and uh, quite possibly elsewhere in your life. Let's talk about one component of that, which is addiction. When did you first think of yourself as having a problem with any
1: type of, of substance abuse or substance use? Uh uh, throughout my using, but I had a different point of view, which is my heroes at that time were Bukowski. Uh, they were other romantic drunks. They were uh, Waylon Jennings. And, and I had this, this fantasy, this romantic fantasy, that I could do something artistically that would be impactful enough that it would excuse all of my shittiness, right? So like Waylon's got several songs basically apologizing for cheating on his wife and it's hard to be in love with a fun loving man. And and Bukowski would put these books out and it kind of excused what a horrendous piece of shit he was in his real life. So I think I very much was, I was looking to be a fuck up, but, but maybe one that was funny enough that people overlooked it or, or I wrote something important enough that people would give me a pass and so that was kind of my, my fantasy. And on some level, it worked a bit. I, I think people were willing to be around me more than some other people that are less funny. But I had underestimated that I ultimately suffered. I ultimately was uh, demoralized and, and, and pessimistic and, and defeated in that it really wasn't about all the people around me I could keep in my orbit that I ultimately had to be with myself all the time. And and so I had an awareness that I drank too much. That was quite obvious. And I knew that I used cocaine far more frequently than the surgeon general would recommend. And <laughs> I I didn't care until... You know, I had a few attempts at getting sober, and I could put together two or three months. I generally did it t- t- because I knew I couldn't use the way I used and work in movies, and I cared more about that. So I would generally get sober from movies. And then in between movies, I would it, I would go out. Um, but I had my my most profound moment was uh, I was about to start this movie, Zathura. I knew I had to get sober for it. I thought, oh, I'm gonna go to Hawaii for a week, vacation with a buddy before I start, because I know I'm going to be getting sober, and I specifically went to Hawaii because I I was under the impression they didn't have cocaine there. It's very hard to get cocaine there, and I, I didn't want to die, but they have other stuff there, and I found crystal meth and all this stuff, and uh, by the time I, I I left that trip, I had a layover in San Francisco, and I was so physically sick from that week. I had been in a car accident. I had smoked meth for a few days, I was just, I was in so much physical anguish that when I got to San Francisco, I I really needed to get down like three or four Jack and Diets to make the flight to LA. And I had been in AA at that point. So I'm so afraid someone from AA is going to run into me at this airport. And so I'm hiding in the corner of this bar and there's the proverbial mirror, it actually was there and i'm 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 hiding, and I am people recognized me, so that dream had come true um I was about to make the most amount of money I ever made in my life, starting that movie an amount of money that I thought would solve all things and I was the most scared, most depressed, most suicidal I had ever been with all the things I had wanted to get, and that was a very very scary moment, and I realized wow, it really isn't about those things. I had told myself, as I think a lot of people do, like, if I got some money, I'd be happy. If I got this girl, I'd be happy. If I got this job, I'd be happy. And I was lucky enough to get all those things and I was very unhappy. And so I really had to ask why. And I had to actually figure out how to be happy because it wasn't those things. They help for sure. I don't want them to be taken away, but, but I was at my shittiest point uh, with all the things I had set out to get.
0: Where did you land asking those questions in terms of what makes you happy? What were the th- the levers that mattered? What were the ingredients that mattered?
1: Well, I've slowly cobbled together a little checklist for me. I think, uh, a shame. I just had a decade of shames, you know, all kinds of deplorable behaviors while fucked up. Um, so that was a big component and then really self esteem right I was trying to get my value from a lot of outside validation, and then i I got it, and I just did, I saw the same person in the mirror. I had also dated girls that I was convinced if that girl liked me, well, clearly that would prove I was desirable and worthy of wanting and then every time I'd look in the mirror at their house, I same piece of shit, and so over years of being sober. My list really became, have I exercised? I can't put too fine a point on my belief in exercise. I, I like, I, I'm a, uh, a zealot about it. I am annoying. I, I, if I had to pick one thing in my life, it would be that I exercise. I've just never felt worse after an hour of exercise than I felt before. So exercise is huge. Um, you know, have I gone to a meeting? That's huge. Have I been of service to somebody I don't want to be? Uh, and in general, when I feel terrible, if I ask myself those three things, if those three things happen today, they've never happened. I've never done those three things and and and, and been in major discontent. I, I you know that for me is kind of my checklist. You mentioned shame. So shame, you know, it's
0: something I've danced with at points. Uh, certainly <laughs> after some, uh, certainly after some childhood experiences, and I know you've you've had your own. Uh-huh. Uh huh rounds with various types of of shame and so on. I wasn't planning on going here this early in the conversation, but you recently admitted to a relapse Uh and had a very public conversation about it. Mm -hmm. If we flash back to your mom's experience, not wanting to fail, not wanting to admit that this time it hadn't worked. Yeah. I view what you did as as tremendously that is coming out and addressing it and putting in place something proactively as a plan to try to mitigate it happening again. Walk me through your experience of deciding to tell, deciding to share because as you know psychologically, uh, I can't speak to what that was like internally, but I'd like to hear it.
1: Yeah, I was very very uh, hesitant to Um, share it, Uh, certainly publicly. Um, One, I had let uh, this 16 years of sobriety become so intertwined with my identity. I mean, I would tell someone within the first half hour of meeting them that I have been sober for 16 years. So it was like so much of my identity was that number. And you know, we fight to protect our identity uh, pretty hard, and I, 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 I did as well. And then, additionally, I had this uh, ego component, which is I so cherished the people who listened to the show who would hear my story of of sobriety uh, and recovery, and then maybe try going to a meeting, or they. Or they got sober. I mean, I've gotten you know hundreds and hundreds of messages from people over the last few years of doing the podcast saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm two months sober because you thanks for this thing. And I, I half of it was just genuinely, I think that's an esteemable act. So that gave me a ton of self-esteem. And, and then my ego is certainly some percentage of that, which is maybe the unhealthy part of it, which is I, I liked being a beacon of someone that this program worked for. And I didn't want to lose that. I I didn't want to not be someone people would look up to and and want sobriety uh, from. And as I started telling people closest to me that I had relapsed, a good friend of mine said, you know, if, if you're true in that your real desire is to help people, it's so much more helpful that you relapsed. Like it is you having 16 years and being married to Kristen Bell is not very helpful to anyone. (laughs) That's those aren't (laughs) overnight goals that someone would feel like they could relate to you on. He said, so if you're, if you're, if you're honest and true about this desire to help people, this is very helpful. And so I, I really took that advice to heart. And I also, as you know, you, you, the, the level of, um, there's something much different for me about listeners and what I call arm cherries than people maybe who saw me in Idiocracy, right? The, in Idiocracy, you've got Mike Judge as the genius behind that, and it's his uh, vision that we're all executing. And uh, if you like the show, you probably like me. Like I'm very uh, connected to anyone that likes the show. I think they like me, not a character I played. So, And I couldn't have a show begging people to be honest about the shitty things that they've done and and then not do that in return. But it, it was really, really hard. And then I had other fears. Again, this is all in the midst of being a, actively addicted to opiates. So, so a lot of the things I would tell you, I know now are not the truth at all. But in those moments, I'm like, you know, I come out and say I relapse. I may lose sponsors. I don't know. I may not get asked to sell Samsung microwaves. You know, I make a living. There's a financial component that could um, backfire. And I'll add into it, it's so not fair for my wife that now every fucking interview she does for the next six months, they're going to ask her about my relapse. Like, that, that feels very unfair to me that I would put her in this situation where now she's got to explain what the hell happened um so those are just all the factors you know that were were, i was afraid uh to to come clean about and then um it was an interesting experience doing it because when we monica and i recorded it i had a lot of control over that i could we could edit something out if we didn't like it uh we could not release it. We still had control. And then there was a period where we're like, well, what do we call it? So I had control over what it was called. We had a control over what day it came out. And then I underestimated that once it was out, it was just out. And then I I had no control over it. And one of the reasons I relapsed is I fucking love control. I love to know what mood I will be in. I love to regulate my emotions and my feelings. And I... I, that's one thing drugs do is you know how you will feel in 30 minutes. And I desire that. And so, but I will say all my fears uh, that they, they've yet to come to pass. Now I didn't lose any sponsors. I had this, we have this great relationship with light life, which is a, a alternative. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a vegetarian meat, right? I got up a huge basket of flowers from them. that said like, we want more than anything to still be in business with you. So it, it, it couldn't have been nicer. It was, you know, humiliating in some ways. And then um, ultimately, the, the bottom line is I felt horrendous lying to the people in my life. Um, I had not gaslit people in 16 years and I was gaslighting people. I was gaslighting people in my life. I was gaslighting a doctor. I was, fu- I was doing it and I just, I don't have the stomach for it anymore. I couldn't do it. Is like I, I would look at Monica who's like, you're on something. And then I deny it, deny it, deny it and make her feel crazy. And then I feel horrendous about that. That used to not bother me or I used to be able to do it, but I, I just I, I, I wasn't able to do it. And so whatever downside that there was, which was so minimal, um, the relief of not looking at people I love and fucking lying to their faces has been you know infinitely better
0: just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors and we'll be right back to the show this episode is brought to you by butcher box butcher box makes it easy for you to get high quality humanely raised meat that you can trust they deliver delicious 100% grass-fed grass-finished beef free-range organic chicken heritage breed pork and wild-caught seafood directly to your door for me In the past few weeks, I've cooked a ton of their salmon, as well as two delicious barbecue rib racks in the oven. Super simple. They were the most delicious pork ribs I've ever prepared. And my freezer is full of ButcherBox. When you become a member, you're joining a community focused on doing what's better for all. That means caring about the lives of animals, the livelihoods of farmers, treating our planet with respect, and enjoying better meals together. ButcherBox partners with folks, small farmers included, who believe in going above and beyond when it comes to caring for animals, the environment, and sustainability. And none of their meat is ever given antibiotics or added hormones. So how does it work? It's pretty simple. You choose your box and your delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time with no penalty. ButcherBox ships your order frozen for freshness and packed in an eco-friendly 100% recyclable box. For a limited time, new members can get six free grass-fed, grass-finished steaks when they go to butcherbox.com forward slash Tim. That's two New York strip steaks and four top sirloin steaks added to your first box for free when you go to butcherbox.com forward slash Tim. Tim. But you have to act quickly. This offer is only good through Cyber Monday, November 30th. Again, butcherbox.com forward slash Tim. So your wife has said publicly that you're also addicted to self-improvement or growth. And that seems to be in your favor. What are some of the, for those people listening who perhaps have battled with addiction or relapsing, what are some of the things you're putting in place to decrease the likelihood of it happening again? What have you changed?
1: It's a really interesting experience for me uh, because I'm day 35 or something right now, right? So the first couple of weeks was just kind of really owning that it wasn't just this last period where I had had two back-to-back surgeries. I mean, that certainly lit a fire under it. But if I if I really go back it started as I said in that episode with having been in a motorcycle accident having a legit prescription uh leaving it in Detroit cuz I had no one to administer it going home to take care of my dad who's dying of cancer he has Percocet I take Percocet with my dad so that's that's shady that's I'm not really supposed to do that uh but I'm justifying that as well I have a prescription at home and fuck it. Also, my dad's dying and we're sitting here looking at the lake and I can kind of justify that. And then I admit it to Kristen and Kristen doesn't think I'm a terrible piece of shit over that. And I kind of just work through that. Right. And then that becomes a little bit of a misleading experience, which is like, oh yeah, I did that once. And it was no big deal. I didn't go out and buy more. I didn't do anything crazy. I didn't act like an addict. Opiates were never my thing. And then I get you know, I've have, I've have a lot of stupid hobbies and I get hurt maybe 2 years later I get hurt again and I have a prescription. And now this time I don't take them at night when they're administered to me cuz they 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 fuck up my sleep. So I just save them and then in the morning when I get the other administered ones I now take two cuz I that feels better than the one. So now we're getting more shady, <laughs> but again I'm not not shady enough where I'm ready to go like, "Oh, I don't have 12 years of sobriety over this." And it's um I willfully allow myself to be misled by all that. I, I go, this isn't something that I really don't have control over. I, I know what powerlessness feels like. I know what unmanageability feels like. If I drink, there's no guessing where I'll be in three days. And if we add Coke to that, there's just no guessing where I'll be for a week or so. You know, That, to me, is powerlessness and unmanageability. But this thing is very misleading because I can do my job. I can wake up on time. I can be there with my kids. I can do everything I would do. And for the most part, no one has any idea. And I'm doing all the things I think I am supposed. I need to do. I'm exercising. I'm still doing the fucking checklist, which is ridiculous. I'm being of service. Uh, I'm exercising. And I'm going to meetings. Uh, But again, now the lies are just, they're, they're just piling up. They, you know, a lie telling the morning has to, I need three more by like three to make the first one make sense. And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot how this spirals. And then that, that was, became very clear that, that it was unmanageable. I couldn't, like, I didn't know who I was telling what to at some point. And then the powerlessness was just you know, opiates is a gnarly thing to get addicted to because daily your your tolerance goes up. So even if you're not even in search of getting higher, y- you're just going to have to take more and more and more. And and that's that's the situation I found myself in pretty quickly into the whole thing, which is just like I'm taking a tremendous amount now, and I'm going to have a horrendous detox, and I know it. And that was not part of the plan. Did I answer your so, question? <laughs>
0: uh, you didn't. But the backstory is helpful. <laughs> what are you doing now? Or what oh. are some, some, I'm nods. sorry.
1: I told you the yeah. first, yes. Yeah. So the so first part was some breakers me, that you put in place. Yes. Yeah, so the first part was just understanding how this thing happened. I needed to get my arms around. Like, how did it happen? Well, it happened with all these baby steps. So that was important for me to acknowledge. Like there's no wiggle for me that, you know, there's no white lie for me because the white lie will just, it, it'll grow. That's what it does. It grows. And then, secondly, I had to ask myself, what am I trying to escape? You know, what do I find so um, uncomfortable in my life that I need to confront? And that took a couple weeks for me to kind of isolate. And um, that's being tackled now. That's being tackled in therapy, and that's being uh, addressed. And, and I, I know, and I'm not really ready to let everyone in the world know what that is for me, but funny enough, the most generic thing in the book, in the AA big book is resentments will make us drink. We can't have them They're, we're for whatever reason. We're the type of people that just, we can't afford to have them. And, and I had a couple and they were huge and i was ignoring them and i was uh not wanting to confront them and and i'm now you know in the process of working through all those um so i think a just coming clean um being honest with everybody and then um committing to figuring out why i wanted to escape and in addressing that which i feel like is happening and then again the 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 huge silver lining of this whole story is that I didn't go drink and do Coke, which I I didn't think was possible. I thought if I had to say I had one day, I'd be like, fuck it. Well, then I want to drink. I miss that. Um, So I just feel crazy lucky that that compulsion didn't come over me. Also, as you're talking about remaining honest to your listeners, it strikes me
0: that if the only thing that came out of your podcast were the strength of that public accountability with this type of situation that that would be a huge ROI on starting the podcast. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, that's an incredible point of leverage. You mentioned Monica's name a few times. For those people yeah. who don't know
1: who Monica is, who is Monica? She is uh, my co-host on Armchair Expert, and her story is fantastic. Which is, um, she was in our friendship circle, kind of peripherally, and. She let us know she could babysit. So I think about seven years ago, maybe, she babysat for our firstborn kid a little bit. And then when we had a second kid, we kind of brought her on more full-time to help. And then we discovered pretty quickly that she was also a UCB person and was incredibly funny and a really good writer. So then Kristen started asking her to write things for her. And then she kind of just took over Kristen's life. She would if Kristen hosts an award show, Monica writes it. If Kristen does a commercial, she punches it up. Like she just became funny enough, in some of the ways, some of the stuff I used to do for Kristen, now Monica did. And which so I was just very thrilled about that. I was like, oh, good. We have two writers in the house now. So um, and then so she transitioned from watching the kids to really running Kristen's whole thing and then uh, she was always around and our hobby would be to argue about uh, political things or podcasts we had just heard or a TV show. We loved debating. Uh, and so when we, when I wanted to do a podcast, I thought, Oh, this would be so great to have her uh, both just to be a completely different point of view than my own. And I think it's also important that it's, it's, it would be a non white and a non male point of view would be helpful. And, and, She has provided that and become, you know, the most beloved part of the show. And she also fact checks all my interviews because I spout facts I learned in college in 1999 that are either not true anymore or I've, I've misremembered them. So she has this fact check component, uh, and, and, and it's kind of morphed. And then she had her own show on our network that was as big as our show. So she's just, she's amazing. So you poached your wife's chief of staff I did, for your kid. Own- <laughs> we we had to have like a it was a really funny conversation because she's like, you know, I think you're you're stealing Monica, right? And I was like, Yeah, yeah. I go, but I you know, we just we gotta go with what's financially better for everyone. <laughs> and so had I not had the financial argument, in my corner, I don't I wouldn't have won it.
0: <laughs> so let's double click on Monica's roll a little bit. There's a piece, large piece from the LA Times, and there's, there's a short mention or an excerpt that I'm going to pull out, which is, eventually, Padman came up with a business plan and together they hashed out rough parameters. So that refers to the planning stage of the podcast. Could you describe at that point in the very nascent stages? Because you're very thoughtful and you're a very smart guy, also very agile on your feet, very funny, of course, but also very methodical and very uh, analytical, if you want to be. And Monica, clearly very smart. What did the business plan and parameters look like in the beginning when you guys were on the back of a napkin?
1: Yeah, uh, that might be overstated. I think that implies a lot more planning than we actually did. But I mean, in in a (laughs) nutshell, two things. Um, I'm a terrible delegator. I have a ton of fear that someone won't execute something in the same tone that I like. Right. Again, back to me being a control freak. It's why I, I went into directing at some point. And so to find someone like her who I had watched take over Kristen's point of view and tone and execute it flawlessly for years, I just felt very safe. Like it's the first person I think I've ever really just trusted to execute this shared idea. So yeah, I don't. I didn't know anything other than I had been a guest on podcasts. Right, that, that's all I knew about podcasts. And so, and Rob too, our other producer, he's very instrumental in this. He was producing another podcast, and I met him uh, on there. And so Monica was like meeting with people who have successful podcasts and finding out oh, everything that goes into it. So she really did gather up all that. I, I just wanted to chat, and she really figured out how to do it with with Rob, who was also very instrumental in it. And then the thing evolves, right? It becomes something that you weren't necessarily you couldn't have foreseen and you you thought you wanted to do one show but it kind of becomes another show and and she was just she's incredibly helpful and and being uh it's just great to have two people who are objective checking each other cuz I'm wrong a lot, she's wrong a lot, you know, but together there's like a there's a pilot copiloty thing. I'll I'll call her the pilot for this uh, and I and I'm the co-pilot, but yeah, she's just, uh, I'll tell you, we, we didn't edit when we first started the show. And the result of that was I felt a compulsion to fill every dead second of airtime. I already talk way too much. I've steamrolled in this interview. And so I did it even times 10 because I, I I was like, what this person's thinking for uh, 22 seconds. I got to say something. And Monica was like, we need to start editing the show. And then she started editing the show. And she really then becomes the editor Is so in charge of the tone of the show. It's it's just, it's her point of view as much as anyone's because she does do that. And I've never listened to an episode and thought, what the fuck was she thinking? I'm always like, oh God, thank God she... She also knows when I go too far, which I, I go too far quite often. And she saves me. Just to give people uh, a a
0: peek behind the curtain... How do Monica and Rob split responsibilities just so people have a window into the podcast operation, so to speak, because this is certainly me following my own curiosity. I mean, you've you've built something amazing, you
1: and your team. How do they split responsibilities? Okay, so I'll kind of tell you pre-COVID because it's evolved, obviously, for for COVID. It's changed dramatically. But when we did every interview in person, Rob was in charge of every audio thing we needed, every, uh, you know, the hosting site, uh, publishing it. Uh, he takes the photographs. He's really great at graphic design, so he does our our look, the yellow thing, and he also does all the merchandising. Like we, he designs all the stuff. Um, I mean, Monica and I are involved in it, but he he physically makes everything. I assume on Photoshop <laughs> or something. I don't even know what he uses. Uh, he he is also the liaison between. Um, all the technical people that are involved in it um and then Monica is very much a producer in that she's dealing with publicists she's booking the show quite often she is on the calls with sponsors and advertisers trying to try and explain what we do and what we don't do and what how everyone could be happy so she's like by the time it gets to me and it's time for me to read ads all the things have been handled by Monica right uh, whether that's just like, oh, we don't actually say that, but he's happy to do this, you know. So um, she's in charge of both, you know, editing, dealing with all the advertisers, um, booking and dealing with getting people. Uh, Rob also will get people too. Like, um, it's a lot easier for us to get experts than it is uh, celebrities. And our show is Monday Celebrity, Thursday Experts. So experts generally have a book to sell and that, that makes it a lot easier. So uh, but but Monica is now very dialed in with all these different publicists. And as we've had better guests, then more people are interested in all this. And she's she handles all that. I research. I show up and I interview people. And I also reach out to people that maybe I have access to that no one else has access to. And on rare occasion, Kristen has to get involved. Because people like her a lot more than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the
0: podcast landscape is kind of a... Elephant graveyard of three episode podcasts or 10 episode podcasts, <laughs> right? Even oh. very well known people with mm. ostensibly pre existing audiences just tap out frequently. Yeah. And there, there are God knows how many, what, 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 new podcasts a week launching. I have no idea. The number is enormous. Yeah. And you kind of pole vaulted very quickly to a dominant position and you have stayed there. And this is probably a question you're tired of people asking you, but to what would you attribute that if you had to speculate or your best friends or people who know the show really well, if it's easier to answer that way, what do they attribute it to?
1: Well, we launched really big, right? Which was um, an advantage that we have over so many people. And we, and we launched very big, or at least I explained it by the fact that Chris and I did it together and the episode didn't go that well, which I think people found very, <laughs> I don't know, probably like uh, mirror neurony satisfying anyone who's in a relationship, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> so I, I had an explanation for why the first episode did really well. And then also some of my, my more popular friends like Kimmel, I think, was on the first batch and so was Ashton. They were nice enough to help. So when they were a part of the launch, I really kind of attributed it to them and or the the shared interest in Kristen and I as a couple, because we've found this out. It would be hard to miss if, say, she posts a picture of herself. Let's say it gets, you know, I don't know, 100,000 likes. She posts a picture of her and I together. It'll get like 300,000 likes. And same for me. There's like a factor of three thing, you know, more than the sum of our parts. So I had explained it by that, and I thought for sure uh it would all fall off as soon as she was not on the show, and my other huge friends were not on the show. Um, and then it just kept working, and 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 I didn't know why. I, I don't know that I fully know why. I think there's a tremendous amount of luck involved, and and also we get incredible guests. I mean, the guest thing is its own machine, uh, where you know, once Bill Gates is on someone else who maybe was like, I don't know, you know, it, it just, it all, some of it becomes self perpetuating, but I'll, I'll say, and when we talked on the phone, I, I told you this, that I learned a lot when we started doing live shows and we got to actually interact with people who listened to the show and we'd hear their questions. And as I told you, then uh, I always noticed in Sam Harris's live shows, when people ask questions, it's just a, it's a diatribe thesis on some kind of molecular biology. Like the, the real goal is clearly, I want Sam to think I'm smart. And so what I I, I glean from that is that they like that Sam smart. that's what they like about the show. That's what I like about the show. I like that he can argue well with other people and I'm exposed to really smart people. So when we started taking questions, they were all they were almost unanimously, oh my God, I'm sorry, I'm wearing the sweatsuit. I wore a skirt, but my thighs were sweating too much because I'm on my period and I had to go to Ross and buy the stupid sweatsuit for five dollars. anyways, I was wondering what your shower routine is, right? And then the next person I get I'm like, I farted in the thing and now my friend won't sit with me. And it was just like, I was overwhelmed with how vulnerable all these people were. It's like they led first with something kind of embarrassing or vulnerable about themselves. And it wasn't until then where I was like, well, then that must be what they like about me. And that must be what they like about the guests when they're on our show versus other shows is that they seem to be more vulnerable or something. And, So I guess that's it. And then I guess from that, I would conclude it must be rare. It must be rare to hear people be that way or people wouldn't be listening. Yeah,
0: especially with the mixture of guests that you have on the show, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think that vulnerability from real vulnerability, not rehearsed. One or two story vulnerability, but like true, I haven't talked about this before, vulnerability. yeah real in, time. <laughs> yeah, real time, oh shit, I think I just backed into a corner. vulnerability from both the like tier one celebrity and tier one experts is 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 quite uncommon. So I think well, they
1: have a safety net, I'll add. you know, so everyone that comes on the show, we tell them up front, you can cut anything out you want. like well, you go home tonight and you're like,, mm, I shouldn't have told that story about my brother. he'll probably, his feelings will be hurt. They just tell us and we cut it out. So we're not uh, 60 Minutes or the New York Times. We're we like I have no journalistic uh, obligation to not give people <laughs> the right to cut shit out, right? Yeah. So I think I think what happens is they know that if they say something regrettable, they can just get rid of it. And then upon saying it, I think they realize they feel different than they feared they would feel, or they see from our reaction that we relate, and then they're maybe not afraid anymore that 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 came out in that time. It's like, I know you just published something really intimate, but it's like, I've been molested. When I tell people I've been molested, I can just see in them, they're like, oh, wow, he just said that, and no one ran away. Okay. Uh, Fuck, I'm going to... Say it too. Yeah, I was too. I, I mean, look, twenty five percent, or at least if 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 a body keeps the score is is an accurate book. Twenty five percent of people have had some sexual trauma in their childhood. I mean, so anytime you're with four people, one person there had it's not rare. Forty yeah. percent of kids have experienced physical abuse enough that it left a mark. I mean, these are not rare occurrences. Yet we all feel so isolated in them and and, and unique and in uh, at fault somehow. So. Yeah, I just think there's something about if you start, people are inclined to match you, you know? You know, when we were chatting uh,
0: on the phone, I was asking you how you prepare for episodes. And it seemed to me, and tell me if I'm misremembering this, but just for people out there who might feel like they're just a collection of weaknesses, that one of your Uh, let's say, past challenges, dyslexia, is actually a superpower of sorts when it comes to podcast prep because you have such a developed memory that you don't need to rely overly so on lots and lots and lots of notes, which is part of the reason why I tend not to do video because I like to look at a lot of notes. I don't have that retention that you seem to have. Is that a fair description?
1: Yeah, I think what other dyslexics who I've met throughout the years, what, what we seem to share in common, let me back up and say there's a great chapter in a Malcolm Gladwell book, uh, I want to say in the Goliath book, um, about for years, and this is what I learned growing up, that dyslexics are twice as likely to end up in prison, which makes total sense because you're going to fail out of school and you know, what are your options? Uh, but it's since been revealed that also, and this number is not right. So whatever the number is, you're also twice as likely to become a CEO. So it's like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. It's like, it it can break you, but also it can be become this asset. And so what I've found from a lot of other dyslexics is that since you're not really getting anything off that chalkboard, that is just, that's a roadblock. You're kind of forced to really, uh, develop a great oral memory. So like when people tell me a story, I find that I just remember that, you know, uh, I'll run into people that I haven't seen in five years and I'll be like, Oh my God, didn't you? And I may remember the story better than they do. And so when I, yeah, research and I kind of, I think out my thoughts and I, as I'm learning about them, questions pop up and I kind of jot them down on paper, but once just the act of me writing them, they're, they're pretty much in there then. So, and yeah, I, I, that must be uh, a result of that dyslexia background where I can, you know, hold on to that. Although it's getting worse. I'll add that, you know, I have two kids and I'm getting older and (laughs) I was on opiates for a few months. (laughs) Chipping, chipping away at the old prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Uh,
0: You give your guests final cut uh that that's also something I do I'm actually frankly surprised that more shows don't make that explicit I, it's it's kind of shocking to me I ended up modeling that on inside the actor studio because oh. early on yeah early on I had Hired. I was introduced to someone who used to do research for Inside the Actor Studio, and I hired them to review transcripts of some of the early episodes of my show to try to identify where I was sloppy, where I could improve, etc., which was a really useful exercise. And so the question for you is, how have you thought about working on interviewing, or how have you most
1: improved as an interviewer since starting the show? I'm still... Really bad at this. I still give myself a C, but I used to be an E. Is I just <laughs> I I talk way too much. I, I it's just it's as if I met you at a bar and and I want your approval and I'm aware of that and I'm trying to get your approval and so I've 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 talked less and less and less over the last few years and it gets better and better the 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 less I talk. But again, I am in a, I will justify it a little bit in that I am so often trying to enact vulnerability, which requires me to go first. It's it's almost like an AA meeting where it's like I share first and then maybe you're compelled to share back. And so it's kind of required. And then we get into this tricky situation where, I mean, it's tricky for Monica, is like how many fucking times can they hear me tell this story? Right. They got to be so bored of it. But at the same time, the guest I have doesn't listen to the show, so they've not heard it. And then I also feel like it's mildly unethical to cut out the part where I say I was molested and then just cut right to them going like, yeah, I was not, you know, so it's a little, it's a little dicey. It's not perfected by any stretch. And I, I do end up talking more than probably people would prefer, but yeah, I've, I've got more and more comfortable with it. I I think also I originally when I started interviewing experts, I am intimidated by them. I mean, I'm, Talking to Richard Dawkins, like, I read Selfish Gene and just thought, how could someone have thought of that? You know, 20 years of thinking this guy's brilliant. So my own fragile ego wants him to know, I get your book. So I'm going to waste so much of this interview letting you know I get your book. And I just, more and more, I I'm, I don't try to prove to the person I'm I'm smart, which is very hard. Again, with the dyslexia baggage, I have a chip on my shoulder that everyone thinks I'm dumb. No matter how much proof I get to the contrary, I, I still have to work through that fear. So if you used to give yourself an E
0: and now you give yourself a C, aside from, and your words, not mine, talking too much, what is improved and what do you most want to improve? Or is it just the volume of talking? Is Are there other aspects? You know...
1: One thing I'll say that has evolved is I was trying too hard at the beginning to get people to be sharing something we never heard. And that, again, I wanted it to be like an... Here's what happens. I'm always in an AA meeting with other dudes, and I hear some person share, and I think, God, I'm so lucky to hear men talk about this. I don't think anyone not in AA gets to experience this. And so I want everyone to have that. And so then the people I have on, I... I wanted them to, with them having no AA experience, I want them to jump right into that. And so I think I pushed pretty hard at the beginning and, I, and I've and i laid off. And then sometimes I think, have I laid off too much? Like I, there's some things, but I am getting more confident with just when it's going to be that type of interview, that's great. It'll be that type of interview. They'll, they'll, they'll I, I follow them more. I, I try really hard now to follow more than I, I previously tried to lead. Because they just get repetitive. I, you know, I, I have all these insecurities. I think we relate a little bit on this. It's just like there was a while there where I was just looking at how many listeners we have, and I'm just waiting for it to drop. I'm like, well, this is going to drop. I know the inevitable trajectory of all things. They, they even hit TV shows. They just slowly and precipitously lose. And there's better shows out there. And then I get distracted. You know, all these things. And I just had to stop thinking about that. I just had to remember. No, no, I did this with no expectations. I didn't think a lot of people would listen. I just love talking, just fucking enjoy talking, and then things will happen one way or another. And so I pretty much I've, I've semi-successfully gotten out of the. I haven't asked Rob what the numbers are in probably a year. No, or maybe the first month of COVID, I was like curious what that had done, but but since then I haven't asked, and that, that's kind of a good barometer for me of how healthy I am, and and how much I'm getting my esteem from the right place. I now just think that I love talking to that person or not. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I I
0: believe in doing prep for this that I read somewhere that it was confusing to you, in a sense, to see the podcast achieve escape velocity and become this juggernaut while not working on it as hard as you had in other things that had produced Mm – uh, less stellar results. <laughs> and and my, 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 my question is, do you think that is just something inherent to the format or is there is there some aspect of you hitting your zone of genius and flow because precisely because you're not trying extremely hard?
1: I mean, that could certainly be it. Uh, I think there's other factors too. Yeah, the thing I kind of... Um, the example I gave was that I'm used to directing a movie where it's a two year endeavor. Like chips for me was at least two and a half years of my life, or that's all I did. And then it's all the whole outcomes decided on a Friday. By 3 p.m., I know if I've completely wasted two and a half years of my life. In that respect, I mean, I, I enjoyed the process so much, but in that respect, yeah, not the outcome I wanted at all. And that that's happened to me twice on two different movies where I just, I gave it two years of my life and then it just, it, it floundered. So yeah, to show up and do something for three hours and for it to work felt very like something's too good to be true here. I think I had a lot of that going like, this isn't how it works. I'm supposed to sitting here, and makeup for an hour, which I don't want to do. Then I got to learn a bunch of lines and then I got to tediously shoot this scene and all these things. And this is like, no, sit down, shoot the shit and bail. And it works. It's just very confusing. It's hard to understand why it would work. But yeah, I think some of it is like, I didn't even know what expectations to have. I didn't know enough about podcasting to know if I was a failure or a success. I can tell you what a successful Comedy movie is that you spent 25 million on. I know you have to hit 13.5 that opening weekend for it, you know, but I didn't really know that. So I wasn't even thinking about it. It's probably the thing in my life that has been purest in that it was really just about the experience and not about the results. And then lo and behold, I, I ended up with good results when I didn't care, which is so confusing. I try to tell this to like, I have no advice for actors, but one is just, you got to somehow convince yourself you don't care if you get cast in this thing. That's the only way you'll be good in the audition. So you got to somehow trick yourself. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you know, I found a, a method for me to do it and yeah, that's kind of seems to be the case here. What is your method? to, uh, to, for audition yourself? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. I've been lucky enough that I've, I've cast things now and I do know now that so often it's not about how good or bad you did is that people are right or wrong for stuff. You know, someone could have been much better at it in theory, but they, they're just not right. They don't, there's something, I don't know what it is. So recognizing it's not personal helped from being on the other side of it. And then also tricking myself into if, if I love acting, if that's my, what I'm claiming I am as someone who loves to act an audition is just an opportunity to go act. So I just I, I get to go act, and, and that's something I'm supposed to love. So if I don't love going and acting in front of people, then I'm, I'm probably doing the wrong thing. So to see the audition itself isn't, is an end in itself. Like I get to go act. And then I also have this point of view now, which is like, I'm going to show you what I would love to do in this movie or TV show, and you may or may not like that. And that may or may not be right for this TV show, and that'll be okay because I really only want to do this thing. And so getting ownership over it, it's like, I'd like to go be in your movie and act like this. And that may or may not work for you. I won't take it personally, as I hope you won't take it personally that I don't want to go and shove a banana peel up my ass to get a laugh. That's just not what I want to do. So maybe neither of us want to do what each other wants to do, but occasionally those things are going to overlap beautifully. And the more I've just been able to go, I'm excited to go show them this interpretation I have of this writing And that'll be that. Uh, It's just the outcome's gotten a lot better once I switched into that mindset. I think that goes for a job interview too, by the way. I think if you go there, show them who you actually are. You're better off being at the job where you being actually you is wanted than you trying to be fucking Eddie Haskell and everyone finds out eight months later, oh, guess what? This guy does not like doing research on the weekends. (laughs) That's not his bag. You have
0: this incredible podcast with just as a lot of podcasts. I mean, I'll speak for my podcast. I mean, an incredible ROI, right? Like you said, it's not two and a half years in, and then you find out on a Friday whether it succeeded or failed. I mean, it's three hours in, and yeah. more more likely than not, once you have a loyal audience, it's it's going to succeed on some level. Yeah, has that changed what you say yes and no to, and how do you decide?
1: which projects or invitations to say yes to now. How has that changed, if at all? It's it, Yeah, it's, it's, it's given me this insane freedom because I also grew up quite broke for a period of time, and my family was very obsessed with climbing the, the financial ladder. So I'm obsessed with money, and I have great fear and financial insecurity. Irrational completely irrational. I've had numbers throughout my whole life. If I had this amount of number, I'd, I'd feel safe. If I had this amount of money, I'd feel safe. And then I never felt safe. So uh, first, I just want to own that it's a complete fear. But having a source of income that has nothing to do with movies or television or commercials is so liberating for me. Because now really, I only, I'm lucky enough to only do stuff that I am excited to do. I don't actually have to think about the financial component. I wouldn't do something uh, motivated out of of financial insecurity, which is very new for me Uh, for, you know, it's, it's three years old. I, I always, I would always be tempted to take a movie. I I liked less if the payday was twice as much. And um, I've interviewed a couple people that grew up with wealth and I've watched them navigate their career and I've been envious of it. Uh, Nick Kroll comes to mind. He, has so much creative integrity. He just does what fascinates him. I think he's had opportunities to do, quote, bigger things or bigger paydays, and he's just always stayed on his path of what makes... what entertains him. And I've I just envied that. And, you know, he grew up with a ton of money. He, he said when I interviewed him, his fucking dad drove to school at a limousine, like Mr. Drummond, you know? So I, I'm experiencing that to a degree, which is like I, I really... I just get to do things I'm really excited about today, and that could totally change. The podcast could go away, uh, you know. I could be back, but currently, yeah, I get to do things I'm super interested in. Or, I, or I don't do them. Uh, we all
0: have fears. I have fears. You have fears that you've, you've certainly spoken about very publicly. If we look at the podcast, your podcast, and my understanding is it's uh, skews female in terms of yeah. listenership. You have clearly struck a chord with the leading with vulnerability, do you ever fear straying outside of that or operating too far outside of a, a template that that appeals to your core listenership? Or is, does that not cross your mind?
1: Well, no, it totally does. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as smart about this thing as I can. Um, I, A, don't want to lose it, and B, I would like to grow it. And so we're in this great situation where you and I have a laboratory and we can try things for very little investment, right? I can, I can try, I'll tell you an example that just happened is, um, I got interested in conspiracy theories, uh, as a result of having Bill Gates on and seeing all these crazy comments, I really had no idea what the hell they meant, save the children He's a pedophile. I was like, what is going on, right? So that kind of, I got really fascinated with conspiracy theory. So I said to Rob, hey, find us a uh, conspiracy theory expert. And he found this guy, David Ferrara. I can't pronounce his last name. I can spell it for you. Uh, but he, he directed this, this uh, documentary, Tickled, that I loved. And he also has a show on Netflix called uh, uh, Dark Tourist. And I, I, and he is a journalist who investigates uh, conspiracy. So I'm talking to him and I'm having the most amount of fun I've had interviewing somebody in two years. Like, I, it's just candy. And so I'm loving it. And then we can kind of see from the results of that episode that people also loved it. And I'm like, well, fuck, I'd love to talk to that guy once a month. And so I call him like, do you want to do this once a month? And like, we'll pay you like you'd be a part of the show and he's like yeah I'm up for that and then we saw the response so it's like oh that's awesome that that just kind of presented itself and revealed itself and so I can't wait to do that and then we've had a couple different things like that where it's just oh it worked for us and then it appears it worked for the audience so let's let's do that again and and yeah I have the 300 mile goal of I'd love to do this show 4 days a week I I would love to give people what I get from Howard Stern, which is like, Oh, I'm following this story. Um, you know, in a dream world, Monday's candy. It's some super famous person you like. And then, you know, Thursday's, uh, protein it's the experts, but maybe Friday is we give you some weird topics. We just learned about that. It gives you something to talk about on the weekend at your barbecue. Like I'd love to, you know, ha- each day have its own thing and, 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 and not get stagnant and, and stay interesting. and, I, I have some faith that those things will present themselves the way this conspiracy thing did. So, the podcast, and when I say
0: the podcast, just to be clear, people, <laughs> I'm talking about Dax's podcast, is so successful and so reliable and so appealing to so many sponsors. If you wanted to make the decision tomorrow to do it every day, you could. I mean, you could, right? If it's, It supports you enough that you could do that. So why why wait? Why not
1: do that sooner? I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm yeah. just curious. Well, I have a kind of commitment to not do it just to do it, right? So like this uh, David thing is a perfect example. Like, oh, I loved it and I want to do it a lot now. And I don't want to just arbitrarily fill up days. I want to make sure that I'm passionate about each day and, I, and, and excited to switch gears from an interview to maybe something more journalistic or whatever it is. And so I, I, I am committed to that, to making sure that I, I'm super crazy passionate about it. And then also I have some, some outstanding obligations. I'm on a show, Top Gear, uh, that'll come out in maybe January. And I have 12 more. I got a film starting in February and, uh, I have a game show my wife and I are going to do. So there's certain things that I'll have to just be mindful of, uh, making sure that they can fit within a schedule where I'm still, you know, I'm doing four a, a week or something. But so I guess I see myself maybe not taking any more on air shit or on camera stuff and just doing this all the time. Cause it is my favorite thing to do. Although top gear is insane. I just go there and I, horse around in fast cars that someone else owns. And then I leave and I don't have to deal with anything. (laughs) I don't have to put (laughs) new tires on the back of it. And people are (laughs) excited when I act like a jackass. And yeah, so that's that would be hard to walk away from as well. Howard Stern. Yeah. I know you have a lot of respect for
0: Howard Stern. Why do you have so much respect for him? And how are you guys different or similar?
1: Yeah. Um, it's really interesting because I only liked him a bit when he was on terrestrial radio. You know, I wasn't someone who, Hey, I was never up that early and I didn't commute anywhere. So I would know, had to like turn it on in my house, which was a foreign concept to me. But once he became, once he was on uh, uh, satellite radio, I could choose when I listened to him because it just replays. And he had also evolved enough. I don't think I would have been on board for throwing baloney at girls' asses and stuff. That wasn't really my jam. Uh, what I really immediately loved about him is what an amazing interviewer he is. He's just such a great interviewer. And I love that his, like, I still find this very intriguing about him, is that his fan base is, I would guess, opposite of mine. I think it's mostly dudes. And so here's this guy who has this kind of dude fan base, and, and and there's a lot of sexual stuff, yet he does transcendental meditation. He doesn't really drink. He eats perfect. He's in love with his wife and it just monogamous to the core. I loved this dichotomy of him. I thought it's interesting that he's speaking to all these guys, yet is, is seemingly kind of different than his fan base. And I also credit him for doing more for, say, gay rights, something I have always cared a lot about. You know, it doesn't help. When I don't know, uh, Lena Dunham gives a speech about gay rights. Her fans already feel that way. They already are in step with her. It's not going to convert anyone. And I always was just applauded him being so embracing of gay rights when his fan base, I don't think was that way that I, I just think that enacted way more progress than the left talking to the left. And I think he's done that kind of bravely with like supporting Hillary and having her on the show. Those most of his fans don't want to hear Hillary. So I just love that he like kept the ear of people open and was very, very soft and gentle with evolving real time himself. He's had so much personal evolution. And I think taking his audience along for that ride in a really unique way. I don't think too many people have done that. When you listen to a Stern interview,
0: because you mentioned he's an excellent interviewer, I would agree with that. For you, what does that mean? What are some of the telltale signs or clues or characteristics where you're like, God damn, that's really good?
1: Well, the thing that you're almost guaranteed to get in every single Stern interview is the person's going to say something they've never said before. You know, like if I'm a huge fan of Bill Murray or I'm a huge fan of uh, Letterman, I mean, what could be more fascinating than Stern talking to Letterman? He doesn't talk to anybody. And the notion that you're going to learn something about them that doesn't exist anywhere else is exciting, I think. He, He has a monopoly on that. And then also his passionate interest in people is infectious and there are many people he's had on that I think I don't like them going into it, and I got to say, with the exception of maybe three of his guests, and I've listened to several hundred interviews, I like the person more after he talks to them. There's only a few times where I was like, "Oh, that person's kind of a dick." I wasn't expecting that. It generally <laughs> goes the other way, and there, and I, what I like about that is like, I do believe that all these people we disagree with or or or, or they are divisive. I do believe we were stuck somewhere with them and talked to them for two hours, that just the humanity takes over. We're we're so much more similar than we are different. And I just find his thing like oddly life-affirming and, and encouraging. Like, oh yeah, I I do like that person. Oh, I thought this person was this. Nah, they're a person who's afraid their kids are gonna turn out shitty and that this and that. You know, I, I I like that experience. Yeah, he's he
0: is incredibly Skilled, and uh, he can do the uh, however you put it, throwing bologna at chicks' asses. He can do that too. Uh huh. Uh, He's he's a connoisseur of that. I remember growing up seeing him on TV and be like, you know, lesbians at two a.m. with Snapple commercials. That was like my memory of whatever Uh it was, being twelve years old and having insomnia and watching Howard Stern on television. (laughs) But when he wants to turn up the dial on Jedi interviewer. I remember listening to his uh, Sheryl Crow interview and being really impressed with just how well he navigates with so much due diligence and preparation, but not seeming like he's reading off of any type of script. Extremely skilled. I read related to Howard that, and I want you to fact check this, but you wouldn't want to invite him on the show because you wouldn't want to feel like you owed him a favor or he was doing it as a favor, if I'm getting that right. Could you <laughs> yeah. expand on that, please?
1: Yes. Uh, um.
0: I mean, because if Howard Stern came to me and said, I'll be on your show, but you
1: have to like be a clown at my kid's bat mitzvah, I'd be like, sure, I'm in, Yeah, Fine. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> Um no I'd be I'd be delighted to owe him a favor. Don't get me wrong. I I would want to owe him a favor. But um I want to add one thing that, that a gift he has that you and I don't have, which is he is the most skilled. There's no question. Also, he has a status that you and I don't have that actually has no matter who he's interviewing in deep desire of his approval, which is incredible. That's I mean there sure. couldn't be a more powerful. I think Letterman had that. People would go out there and they really wanted Dave I certainly was dying for Dave to like me when I was on the show. It was way more about getting him to like me than whatever was happening with the audience or what movie I was supposed to promote a singular goal. I want Dave Letterman to like me. And I think he benefits from that a lot. Howard Stern. I know I wanted him to like me when I went on. I don't think when people sit down with the URI, it's like it's going to make or break their year, whether we ultimately <laughs> like them or not. So I think we have a, more of an uphill battle, but I just know as a fan of the show and someone who knows him personally, he doesn't want to do anything. And I get it. I get it. You know, I, I want to do less and less. And I imagine with more and more success, I'll want to do even less. And so I know he doesn't want to be on this show. I, 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 I have faith that if he were on it, he'd enjoy himself and not regret it as much as he thought he was going to, but I just know he doesn't want to. So I just, Wouldn't I have his email. I've never asked him to be on the show. I will never ask him to be on the show. Hopefully, I have said to Baba Booey once, look, he's promoting this book. Our audience fucking buys books, man. That's why we get experts. There's a huge uptick if someone comes on the show with book sales. So I'm not even saying I want a favor. I'm just saying if he wants to sell a lot of books, the door is open. And I just left it at that. But that was as far as I would go with inviting him.
0: Do you have... I know Howard Stern would be a dream guest for a lot of people. He doesn't want to be a dream guest. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Do you have any dream guests you have not already reached out to? Is there anyone where you're like, one day...
1: Well, I got to say, the most shocking event of my life... It's the only guest I've called my mom to brag about that I knew was coming was Bill Gates. I just... I saw that documentary on Netflix. I don't know if you've... Have you seen that Inside Bill's Mind? I haven't. You... I guarantee if you give it five minutes, you're going to plow through all four episodes. It's so good. He is one of the most fascinating people to ever live on planet Earth. There's no question. So I just am obsessed with him. And we didn't invite him on. I I just talk about him a lot because I'm obsessed with him. And someone from his team called and said, would you guys want Bill Gates? And Monica called... Uh, better than if she the, she had just hit the lottery. It's like you are not going to believe. It just has to be on the f- show. And my first thought was like Obama or Bill Gates. Like who would I not believe? <laughs> and it was fucking Bill Gates. And I think he was the number one guy I would have I wanted to talk to. But uh, of course, I, I would love to talk to Obama. Uh, uh, I mean, that would be awesome. And then Bill Murray. I just you know I, I'm I'm pretty obsessed with Bill Murray, and I. I know he doesn't do anything either, so the odds of that happening are very, very slim. But yeah, I would love to talk to Bill Murray. He's, uh, he's a North Star as far as just like, like I said, I brought him up at the beginning, like breathe, believe in yourself, be calm, it'll happen. Perhaps another cliched question I'm going to ask because I know
0: people would enjoy hearing the answer, and that is for people who ask you for advice related to podcasting, because you must get it all the time from friends also. I'm thinking of starting a podcast. I just started a podcast. I'm going to start a podcast. What do you say to people who, let's just assume you want to spend a little bit of time and give an answer because they're a close friend. Yeah. What do you say, what do you say to them?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think that, yeah, the friends of mine who have reached out, they're a little bogged down in the idea, right, uh, in the concept. And I, I don't think that's the relevant aspect to be honest. I, I don't think like if you give a one line description of why Howard Stern's been on the radio for 40 years successfully, it's not like shock jock. Who's not afraid to throw baloney at people. I don't know how you sum that <laughs> up. There's no, the concepts irrelevant. It's, it's him. And, it, and if you look at why he's so successful is that he's just fucking brutally honest. He tells everyone what he's thinking. Embarrassing stuff. I remember one time this was so great. He came in. It was a Monday morning show. He was grumpy all morning. And, and Robin's like, you're grumpy, huh? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, I've been grumpy for two days. Uh, what was why, why did I get grumpy? I was sitting. Oh, my God. I know when I got grumpy. It was right after I took a dump. I know what happened. I was reading a fucking article that said Ashton Kutcher has a billion dollars. And I was like, how the fuck? Mind you, he's friends with Ashen. So the <laughs> fact that he's acknowledging that that would piss him off, I guess he has 500 million. It's so wonderful. <laughs> like, here's a guy with 500 million uh, sitting on a very nice toilet, presumably, and he's agitated that this other guy has a billion dollars. It's so human and wonderful. And I think most people would hide that about themselves, they wouldn't own that they're that shitty and petty. And so I guess when people call me, I'm like, yeah, the concept's great and blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I may have a note or two about sustainability of a concept. Like I'll just go, it feels a little limited to me because won't that be done in 10 episodes or won't that be done in 40, whatever. But, but mostly I just say like, you know, if you're going to do it, you got to make the decision that you're going to be a hundred percent honest or it's not worth doing. And I don't think it'll work. And so often the people that are calling me are other public people. So that's kind of a big barrier for them. Understandably, and I I just don't know that it works unless you are. Maybe it. I mean, if you have a real, if you have a uh, procedural show like, let's say, making a murder, uh, or not making a murder, but um, those wonderful girls who have the one women who have the best podcast. My favorite murder. If you if you're covering a case every time, yeah, I, I think maybe you could you could have a premise driven one, but you know, you better have a research. You better be a radio lab or, or this American life. And you got a team of journalists that are going to go out there and build this incredible show over the course of six weeks and edit it into 90 minutes. But if you're just going to drive the show, if you're the content, then it better be like being your best friend. Or I just don't think it'll work. Yeah. (sighs) What are you thinking about right now?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm thinking that like you have to like, the format you choose. If you don't like the format you choose, you're just not going to have the endurance, also, mm-hmm. to do it for a long period of time. And you're going to be, if you are competitive, and maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe you're just doing it for the the love of the game, and you don't care if anyone listens. But if you want to break through the noise, you need a certain degree of enthusiasm and endurance, both of which will be lacking if you don't enjoy the format you choose. Uh, it just seems so.
1: I agree. Fundamental as a decision. you. Well, by the way, I've talked to some friends where they're like, oh, I want it to be about X, Y, and Z. And I'll go, I'm just going to point out I've known you for 12 years. You've never brought that topic up to me, but I can (laughs) tell you the topic you bring up all the time, which is like home furnishing. I know you think because you're a director or an actor or this, you should be talking about that, but you love home furnishing. Uh, that's what I know you like to talk about nonstop. Like, why isn't that what your show is? So I think first yeah. you just got to go like, what am I endlessly talking about? And I know I don't go eight minutes into a conversation at any party or I haven't asked, did you get molested? <laughs> like, or they, they say something and I think, Oh, I'm just curious. Like, Oh, is one of your parents, like, I noticed your husband is, he's very quiet. Was your dad quiet? Like I, that's all I'm interested in. I want to know, why we're all, we've all landed in, in these spots. And I, and I think the clues are in your childhood. So that's all I talk about at parties, you know, and then that's all I talk about on the podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, you're not putting, you're not changing wardrobe too much in right. terms of going <laughs> on the show. You appear to be a voracious reader. You read a whole lot, it seems. Uh, are there any particular books that you, Gift to other people or recommend more than others?
1: Yeah, there's a number one. It's it's I I can't stop talking about. It. I've read it three times now. I will read it again soon. Is Titan, uh, the the uh, Ron Chernow book about John D. Rockefeller? Rockefeller. Have you read that book? I haven't. I've oh. seen the cover. I got to tell you, it's a very for someone I can already tell like you, like. I'm I'm blown away with the fact that you would have had someone go over your transcripts and point out things that you're doing wrong or that you would listen to find the errors. All the this is a very you have such a specific uh commitment to betterment, which is fascinating and and um and obviously uh very inspiring. That's why people adore you. I would have guessed Rockefeller was one way. And then in this book, I learned he's almost the opposite of everything I would have guessed about him and that his approach to all these things was so unique and so confident. I don't know how this guy got this confidence. His, when he was running standard oil, which is a feat that'll never be accomplished again. I mean, the the level of what he accomplishes is, is insane, but early on in the company, he set up a couch in his boardroom He's a big believer in naps. He napped all every day. He napped for a long time. And he would have all the board members at the table, but he'd be laying on a couch and he'd doze in and out and he'd listen to them talk. <laughs> and he and then he'd just pop up with like one idea and that was good for him. And then he'd walked home early that day. Like he's he was not what I would have thought. And just his weird confidences, I just loved it. And then all of the things he has impacted is is. There's not been an American that's had a bigger impact on, on life than him. There, there was no research medicine that didn't exist. He's the, he funds the first research medical facility. He's the one who says, man, if you go get a procedure in Tennessee, those doctors have a totally different set of knowledge than the ones in New York. No one's doing the same thing. Why is that? Oh, cause all these medical schools, they don't have a unified curriculum. Okay. Who has the best curriculum in the country? Johns Hopkins. What if I take that curriculum and I pay universities to adopt it? Like he, he unifies medicine. He gets rid of hookworm. He, he just tackled anything. He was so cocky and confident in the things he tackled, and he succeeded. He's just an amazing person. I, 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 I can't read that book enough. You've read it three times. Yeah, you might read it again.
0: What do you get? Because there's an information appeal, learning the bio and so on. Yeah, but. You have a great memory you you probably get that after two passes. What do you gain from reading it a third time, a fourth time? Well funny enough, it's a
1: big book, so I do forget a lot yeah it's not this
0: is not this is not a uh you know uh, Charlie Brown
1: yeah strip like, this is a long, in, these are big books is it, even as I'm talking to you, there was a period where he somehow took up, took over all the shipping routes on Lake Erie and, and I, I can't remember right now the exact mechanics of how he did that. And so that'll interest me. I'm like, oh, how again did he get a Monopoly of the Lake Erie ship? You know, that's interesting. I, got, I want to find that out. Um, I can't explain it. It's, kind of, it's just kind of like watching a favorite movie. It's like I, I enjoy it each time around. And then also I, I always recommend all the John Krakauer books. He's my favorite writer probably. I, I Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't even know which one to say is the best, but Where, Where Men Win Glory is, is an incredible book. Have you read that one? I have not. It's the, again, Excellent writer, though. You'll see a theme here. I I love when I find out something's opposite of what I thought. It's why I like Malcolm Gladwell, right? Every single chapter is about some common sense assumption that we find out through testing is counterintuitive. I I find that to be the most pleasing experience of going, oh my God, I'm dead wrong about that. I I would have thought that doesn't make any sense. I love that. Uh, Pat Tillman. I remember when Pat Tillman quit the NFL and joined the army because he wanted to go to Afghanistan. And when I heard that, I thought, what could explain that? Either, here are my my guesses. He's either a religious zealot, and this is a crusade against Islam, or two, this guy has done something so dark in his past that he has to atone in this insane way. Those are my only guesses. I read that book, uh, Where Men Win Glory, and, and it's the Pat Tillman story, and I find out quickly it's not any of those things at all and that this person had this level of integrity I certainly don't possess, and I don't think I've ever met anyone that has this level of integrity. Uh, Real quick, he was like last-round pick to the Arizona Cardinals. He becomes one of the best safeties in the league. He gets offered $8 million to go to St. Louis on a four-year contract. Arizona will only give him a one-year contract for like a million bucks, and he stays in Arizona. He's like, these people bet on me when no one would. I'm going to stay and get less money with less security because they deserve that. I wouldn't have done that. I would have fucking been shopping for a house in St. Louis or whatever team it was. And thing after thing in his life was like that. And so just like this incredible human that I've never gotten to meet in real life that I get to meet through this book. And it's opposite of everything I assumed. And he wasn't a jingoistic, patriot, you know, he wasn't a, In fact, he got immediately disillusioned because he got deployed to Iraq instead of Afghanistan. He didn't think we should be in Iraq. Then he goes to Afghanistan. He's killed in friendly fire. There's a cover-up. His brother uncovers it in the family, and they speak out about it. They're like, you will not use him as the poster boy for the military because he was misled and lied to. And then he was killed by a friend. It's wild. Titan by Chernow. Also yeah. at the top of
0: the list, I, I'll I'll trade a recommendation. Nothing more, but uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. If you haven't read that, I can't
1: recall the author offhand. Hold on, I got to write it down I'm on this little piece. Yeah, of so I can't spell Genghis Khan, but I'll figure it out. Genghis yeah. Khan. Yeah. Uh, also, and what's the, what's the subtitle? Genghis Khan what? Oh, Geng- Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World.
0: Oh wow! Oh, well, this, this is, is what, right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah this yeah this this book it sounds like will be right up your alley it was recommended to me i'm not going to name his name because i don't know if he would want it to be named but recommended to me by one of the best known ceos in the united states and it's outstanding and if you want to talk about a portrayal of a person and their role in history that is counter to almost everything you might believe and all the preconceptions you might have just the first 50 pages will leave you just <laughs> absolutely dazzled by how much of an impact on things we take for granted now uh genghis khan had so that's that's a that's a good read
1: can i just tell you my i have almost no knowledge of him other than didn't then he invent the shock troop the the stirruped rider on a horse utilizing the mass of the horse to strike other soldiers was that his big invention you know, warfare wise uh, th-
0: there were a lot of military innovations uh-huh uh, i don't recall using the weight of the horse okay uh, certainly he was very good at amassing and building an army by absorbing the engineers and warriors of the conquered. Uh-huh. He was also uh, very tolerant even. Supportive of all religions, as long as they made sure to pray for Genghis Khan at some point.
1: <laughs> sure, that's a that's a small request.
0: And uh, from from a logistics standpoint, I mean the the type of warfare using uh, these. <laughs> I mean, his scouting missions would defeat some of the most capable armies in the world. These were like advanced teams that were scouting, and they would defeat armies that would be considered, you know, the US or China of its day in terms of military power. And his impact and the impact of of his activities on logistics, I mean, ranging from postal services to beyond, Wow! and just the sheer magnitude of what he did, even compared to Alexander the Great. I mean, it's
1: Staggering, so yeah. it's a it's a, it,
0: it's a cool read. And don't it's a really they say cool like
1: read. some actual percentage of people on planet Earth have his genes? Yeah, there's some absurd is that percentage that get, that or get cited. Or is that real? I, I, I
0: would I would need Monica to fact check that. I don't. <laughs> I think it might be apocryphal, but who knows? I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me, and it would also not surprise me if it were exaggerated.
1: But well, I have a, ex- I have ex- a salacious uh, personal experience I'll tell you about that is uh, uh, probably inflammatory. But, you know, um, Marlon Brando had that island down in Bora Bora. And my wife shot a movie there, and we were there for six weeks. And I got to all the little islands in the Atoll. I had gone on diving things, and I met a lot of locals. And it is rumored there that he had that he had, had like a dozen or so kids, Right. And I'm telling you, this is, this is very anecdotal. But I, I personally met several people that were clearly half Brando and half <laughs> Tahitian, I guess. <laughs> and I thought, wouldn't it be hilarious if all of a sudden, not, not unlike when the, the, the Samoans overtook the NFL, if all of a sudden there was just a sweep at the Oscars for like a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Uh, so he might amount for some percentage there in, in Bora yeah. Bora. <laughs> uh,
0: well, Dax, this is this has been a lot of fun. I want to ask just a few more questions yeah. and and then wrap up for this, this round one. You know, you've been very forthcoming with a lot of your challenges over time. You, you do something that I respect a great deal, which is not leading with solely the highlight reel. I think that that's real service to people who are suffering as we all are in various ways, often self-inflicted wounds. And uh, I wanted to know if you have perhaps a favorite failure. And what I mean by that is a mistake or something at the time that you viewed as a failure that in some way set you up for Success later, if there's anything that you gained from tremendously that at the time seemed like a shortcoming or a
1: failure or a mistake I mean the one that 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 jumps out immediately and is is most relevant to this conversation is um you know I was, I was heartbroken when chips didn't open um, because uh, back to my identity crisis. I had a three-year stretch where in my mind, I decided I wasn't an actor anymore. I was a writer-director, and I liked that. It felt loftier. Well, and substantively, I feel a lot more pride over having written a script than having acted. I do think it's harder. so Some of it's worthwhile, but I had decided I was a writer-director, and that was going to be the next 10 years of my life. Chips had tested really high at Warner Brothers, and they immediately put me on another movie that I took over from some other people, and so I was doing that and then overnight that ended i i i did not have that identity anymore and they had already commissioned chips 2 i was already beginning to write that and um i got very depressed like for 3 4 months maybe more i i started doing math and thinking okay could i retire now like could i be done now I live on this amount of money, blah, blah, blah. I that that's that's what I was spending most of my time thinking about is whether I was completely done. And that's when I wanted to do the podcast. I I, mm. I was ruminating on so much stuff. I was thinking about my own life and identity and trajectory and the failure. And and then I I started it in the wake of that. And and um I think because I was so interested in failure at that time. I say often on the podcast, I have nothing to learn from someone holding an Emmy over their head. I, I just won't. I'll never be holding an Emmy over my head. But I can. I can relate if that person cheated on a, someone they loved and regretted. I can relate to the failures that led up to that. That that's something I I can learn from. And that's how I learn from people in AA. I don't ever learn from someone telling some victory story. It's always how they fucked up and realized it, and so. Now, in hindsight, you know, had I had the thing I wanted, which was a being a writer-director, it's so time-consuming. My kids were uh, one and three when I finished that movie, maybe uh, two and four, and I would have been gone. I would have taken bigger movies. I would have been way more into that. Ironically, I would have ended up making less money. <laughs> so like this thing that i i had no desire to do and this this complete collapse of this identity i had and desire um turned out to be something that allows me to be with my kids a ton i'm at home all the time uh my wife can take work out of town if she wants i can travel and do this like this life that came out of this epic failure this 20 year pursuit uh turned out to be something better than i had even thought to imagine i didn't even know that this could exist so yeah, that's that's a very obvious one for me now that I look back and go like, fucking, thank God that thing failed. I would have been writing that movie, then directing that movie, then trying to get them to give me a hundred million to do this one. And but by the way, movie business is collapsing, so I would have been doing all that and in a time it's almost impossible to do that. So yeah, I I got so lucky in that thing not performing <laughs> crazy <laughs> enough. <laughs> What a story.
0: It uh, makes me think of something a friend of mine said. I can't recall who it was, but sometimes you need life to save you from what you want.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: what a great story. Well, even if you go
1: through your own life, right, and you think of the times you got exactly what you wanted, and then the times you didn't get the thing you wanted, and what I know most is that I I don't know what's best for me. Uh, The things I got that I wanted did not turn out or result in anything I I had forecast or dreamt of. And yet all these things I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be on TV. I had decided in my egotistical mind I was a movie actor. I didn't want to be in TV. I reluctantly was on this show Parenthood because I was at a lull in my career. Best experience I've ever had as an actor. Opened up the doors for me to act in so many other things. Without question, the best thing that ever could have happened to me as an actor. And it was the thing I didn't want to do. And, you know, I got to do the exact thing I want to do. Ride wheelies on motorcycles (laughs) in a movie I directed. And it fucking didn't turn out. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so just uh, maybe two more questions here. This is going to be a question that sometimes, sometimes turns out well and oftentimes does not. So we'll see where it goes. Flaccid or cur- hard? What was that?
1: Flaccid or hard? I'd say, I'd say, I'd say this is, I'd say this is a clear
0: half chub question. So we're going to go with that. And it is, if you had a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get any message, word, image out to billions of people, could be anything non-commercial, what might you put on that
1: billboard? Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a big, I feel like that would take me like a couple of weeks to come up with the right answer for that. Let's see. Let's see. So I'm driving on the road and I'm going to see a billboard and what would I most want to see? Okay. I got it. I think it's right, the message lit. I most need to hear. Yeah. Lay it on me. Would be be as kind and forgiving to yourself as you are to the people you love. Uh, i i yeah. i'm i'm pretty fucking brutal to myself and i'll listen to a guy in a meeting so share the exact same thing i just did and i'm like oh that poor guy it's hard of course that happened yeah <laughs> but for me i'm like you are the piece of shit i always knew you were here's more proof you don't deserve <laughs> love from anyone <laughs> That is the billboard
0: I would also most need to see, so I appreciate that answer. And uh, Dax, I I really appreciate you as a student of life, as a presenter of personal truth, including when it is uncomfortable. And I, I really believe that the exploration of vulnerability and story and sort of shared difficulty on your podcast is a real service uh, to to your listeners. So I want to commend you for that and thank you for that. Thank you. You're welcome, and I really appreciate you. You know, really sadly, I you. think
1: the, the people that want to, that need to hear it the most are us boys, and yet only yeah. girls are listening. I feel like we're, <laughs> we're the ones that just, you know, it, it's all about weakness and strength for us. It's so stupid, ugh. Yeah. Well, you're,
0: you know, I am probably the mirror image of your podcast in terms of demographic. I would guess that I'm around, it's between 60 and 70% male. So certainly uh, a lot of men and women will have listened to this episode yeah. and you've given a lot of food for thought. Where can people find you, learn more about you? Where
1: would you like them to check you out? Well, they should read my autobiography, uh, Horsepower. Uh, story. No, uh, I'm on Instagram, I think just under my name, Dak Shepard. And then, yep. uh, yeah. And then armchair expert, if anyone would like to listen to the podcast, it's on all of the, uh, so Rob tells me it's on all of the many platforms people consume their podcasts on. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it for me. I hate Twitter. I'm on it, but only to promote the show. What a cancerous black hole that place is. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> yeah,
0: a lot, a lot, a lot of people peeing in the pool on Twitter. Oh, oh. ruins the fun. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation, dex Yeah,
1: it was awesome. I can't wait to interview you. Yeah, yeah. We'll I have would, it like we'll we'll, we'll we'll give it like a month lull so we both get interested in each other again. <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: separation makes the heart grow fonder. So we'll do that. And to everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. And you can find show notes for everything we discussed, including Armchair Expert, including uh, Horsepower, his brand new autobiography, (laughs) and and, and all of the social handles and everything at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, be safe. And if your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete, to quote Jack Mm, 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 Cornfield, That's good. That should be the billboard. Yeah. of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to 4hourworkweek.com, that's 4hourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Viori Clothing, spelled V-U-O-R-I, Viori. I've been wearing Viori at least one item per day for the last few months, and You can use it for everything. It's performance apparel, but it can be used for working out. It can be used for going out to dinner, at least in my case. I feel very comfortable with it. Super comfortable, super stylish. And uh, I just want to read something that one of my employees said. She is an athlete. She is quite technical, although she would never say that. I asked her if she had ever used or heard of Viore, and this was her response. I do love their stuff. been using them for about a year, I think. I found them at REI, first for my partner, t-shirts that are super soft but somehow last as he's hard on stuff, and then I got into the super soft cotton yoga pants and jogger sweatpants. I live in them and they too have lasted. They're stylish enough, I can wear them out and about. The material is just super soft and durable. I just got their clementine running shorts for summer and love them. The brand seems pretty popular, constantly sold out. In closing, and I'm abbreviating here, but in closing, with the exception of when I need technical outdoor gear, they're the only brand I have bought in the last year or so for yoga, running, lounge wear that lasts and that I think look good also. I like the Discreet logo. So that gives you some idea. That was not intended for the sponsor read. Uh, that was just her response via text. Viori, again spelled V-U-O-R-I, is designed for maximum comfort and versatility, you can wear it running. You can wear their stuff training, doing yoga, lounging, weekend errands, or in my case, again, going out to dinner. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Their clothing is so comfortable and uh, looks so good, and it's it's non-offensive. You don't have a huge brand logo in your face. You'll just want to be in them all the time. And my girlfriend and I have been wearing them for the last few months. They're men's core short K O R E, the most comfortable lined athletic short is your one short for every sport i've been using it for kettlebell swings for runs you name it the banks short this is their go to land to sea short is the ultimate in versatility it's made from recycled plastic bottles and what i'm wearing right now which i had to pick one to recommend to <laughs> folks out there or at least to men out there is the ponto performance pants and you'll find these at the link i'm going to give you guys you can check out what i'm talking about but i'm wearing them right now They're thin performance sweatpants, but that doesn't do them justice. So you got to check it out. P-O-N-T-O Ponto Performance Pant. For you ladies, the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Fiore isn't just an investment in your clothing. It's an investment in your happiness. And for you, my dear listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. It's super popular. A lot of my friends have now noticed are wearing this. And so am I. vioreclothing.com forward slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. So check it out. vioreclothing.com slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. And discover the versatility of Viori Clothing. This episode is brought to you by Aura, O-U-R-A. It is the only wearable that I wear on a daily basis. Aura is the company behind the smart ring that delivers personalized sleep and health insights to help you optimize just about everything. And I've tried every device out there that you can imagine. This one really makes the cut. I've been using it religiously for at least six months now and I was introduced to it by Dr. Peter Atia, who's also vetted just about everything. With advanced sensors, packs state-of-the-art heart rate, heart rate variability, HRV, super important to me, temperature activity and sleep monitoring technology into a convenient non-invasive ring. It's tiny. It weighs less than six grams and focuses on three key insights, sleep, readiness and activity. So I can use it to help focus my attention on the type, volume, intensity of exercise that I should do in a given day. I use it to determine how certain types of alcohol at different times of the day affect my sleep, which they do, and I can see all of that in graph form trended over time. There are tons of actionable insights that have come from using this ring for me. They have a number of incredible people on their team. Dr. Matthew Walker, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at UC Berkeley, and also author of Why We Sleep, the mega hit, is Aura's chief science advisor as just one example. The Aura ring is one of the most accurate wearables available because it measures your vitals directly from your finger. So it's not deducing that or uh, making a best guesstimate based on a bunch of other things and trying to triangulate compared to a medical grade electrocardiogram the Aura Ring is 99.9% accurate for resting heart rate and 98.4% accurate for heart rate variability. And I work with HRV doctors, and they recommend that I use the Aura Ring. So try it yourself. It is super cool and super practical, very actionable. The Aura Ring comes in two styles and three colors, silver, black, and matte black. I use matte black. For $299, you can give or get the gift of health by visiting OuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A. R I N G dot com. Again, that's Aura ring.com.